Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Substantial Life podcast. I'm Job Foster. I'm Pierre Leroux. And I'm Kevin Redlingeis. Today we will have Kevin with us, hopefully for many more episodes. Today we will be discussing church and society. We will be speaking about what is society, what is the church, and do they have a relationship with one another? I think it's a really, really interesting conversation to have. Most of the time that we see this conversation being had, it's in relation to the quote-unquote doctrine of separation of church and state, which was a very foundational idea to the founding of America, although not in the Constitution, contrary to popular belief, but still a really important legal idea that most Western countries have adopted. I see it a lot now, particularly in the conversation about the abortion bill in Texas. Many people saying that it's super Christian nationalist, And maybe or maybe not that is the case, but the question we need to ask ourselves is, what is the separation of church and state, and is that necessarily a good thing? And Definitions are always a good thing to start with, so when I'm talking about the state or society as a whole, society would be just the collective body of people cooperating, mostly for mutual benefits, um... And the state is the organized body behind that, like the legislative body, the ruling body, how we choose to organize our society. So society is just generally people together. The state would be then the organized way that we do that. So would you then say that society is a natural thing? Because it would seem that it arises from, from human nature. Yeah, I, I would say that it's a natural thing for all social animals. I would say that like... Even zebras have a society, albeit much more basic than the one that we have. Most social animals have a society in some way, shape or form. And humans are included. When we go about in our day-to-day lives, we don't often consider this idea that we are part of a social group. Tigers are not part of a society. They're not social animals. So the, the male tigers just go and they hunt on their own. Well, we as humans, everything we do is connected to society. I mean, I'm drinking out of a cup that was made by another person who I never know, nor will I know. And the technology was invented by someone else very long time ago. We're using a microphone. We are part of a society even when we don't see ourselves as social. For example, if you feel you aren't part of society or you're isolating away from society, but you go to a market or to a superstore then you're participating in society and you're part of it. Yeah, and even Jean-Jacques Rousseau in The Social Contract states that we are in a society for our own benefits. Like, we can't survive in isolation. At least we can't really thrive in isolation. So we put ourselves in society and we put limitations on ourselves and on other people in order to get a maximal benefit for ourselves. It's a basically the idea of division of labor. I, I have certain skills, Pierre has certain skills, Cabrin has certain skills, but we work together so that we can achieve human flourishing at the end of the day. I think if, if we ask the question, what is the goal of society? Can we speak of society having a goal? That's not my thought. I think society naturally flows from the human, um, in the internal human purposes. I think it's part of us to be social beings. So a flourishing life for any individual cannot be separate from being in part of a society. For example, on our episode on virtues, you cannot actualize or have certain virtues if there's not people to be virtuous towards. For example, you cannot practice real self-sacrificial love 
if you're the only person on an island. Mm. No, I definitely agree with that. And I would even add on to that that the benefit of society is the aim of it to benefit the maximum amount of human beings and that's typically through laws and justice and through um the collective working of the collective there's a bit um of an oxymoron on the collective working of the collective but anyway towards the benefit of the individual so that the individual can flourish more so what would you say then is the difference between a society and a state I would say that the state is the means by which we achieve that flourishing, whereas the society is just broadly a bunch of humans together. Just a bunch of random people on an island may be a society, but the state could be a monarchy, the state could be a democracy, the state could be an aristocracy, an oligarchy, a communist state, whatever. It's just the means by which we choose to try to get that flourishing. So a state is this organization of a society in a specific form to influence the entire society. I would say so, yes. A, a short historical note, we take the idea of a state, you know, for example, the state of South Africa, the state of Germany, the United States of America, we take those things for granted. We, we see that as a normal thing, you know, you have countries. But the idea of a country is actually a very new thing. This idea that you are unified because of some geographical uh, collectiveness, that wasn't always seen as status quo. Uh, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, in his book, The Philosophy of History, he speaks about history being this progression and the merging of different ideas to form a new idea, speaks about the thesis and the antithesis and then the synthesis. And he speaks about how history has progressed. He goes into ancient Egypt. It's a very interesting book. Um, He also speaks about how the religion of the people showed how they saw people. We should actually discuss that when we go back to our God series. But he basically saw the state as the fulfillment of history. Now, he wrote in the 1800s. So he thought, because in his time, the state wasn't yet so much of a status quo thing as it is now. And he saw that if you can have a state, you can have heaven, basically, for for Hegel. And that was taken up by the young Hegelian Karl Marx who also saw in Hegel the inevitability of having this class struggle, of an economic class struggle between the haves and the have-nots, ending up in the have-nots, overpowering the haves, and creating a society in which there's human flourishing, where the state becomes a system separate from the society itself, that the state became becomes like a system, and then that system cares for the individuals and distributes wealth and Um, property and things like that although these ideas of wealth and property eventually get broken down in the the actual communist utopia (laughs) so what we just want to point out is don't take this idea of an organization responsible for ruling the society a state is actually a relatively new technology it's a relatively new way of thinking about organizing people and it has been remarkably effective for both human flourishing and oppression. What would be, so if we would say society has a certain goal and that flows from human nature, the goal of human flourishing, the humans being how much they can be. And I also would want to say humans helping other beings to be as much as they can be. The state is then an organization of humans for that purpose, to 
facilitate human flourishing. So a, a state is only good insofar as it, it, it's helping towards that. I can generally agree with that. I think that if the state is actively trying to hurt human flourishing, it is not a good state. And the people will rebel against the system. Like we've seen now in tyrannies constantly, if you take your foot off the tiger's neck, the tiger is eventually going to bite you. These states will overthrow themselves. However, states that are actively trying at least to do something for human flourishing tend to be a lot more long-lived, but at the same time, the people in them tend to be a lot happier with those states. Mm. Well, that's interesting, yeah. Cameron, what would you say is the church then? So I think that we can make the same distinction that we do with the state and society with the church. You could say that the church is either just the collective body of believers, or you could also say that the church would then be the... I want to say almost the beliefs of said believers, the doctrine, the orthodox, the traditions, the culture of those believers. I think that both definitions are quite useful to think of it both in terms of people and in terms of ideas, beliefs, and doctrine. Mm. I think that I'm, I'm going to use the word church for both of them, and I'll just flip-flop between the two definitions depending on the context. And in the discussion, will you be referring to church as religion in the broad or only to Christian religion. My grandfather, who is a theologian, he once spoke with a Muslim imam about the differences between Christianity and Islam. And the Islamic scholar, the imam, said that one big difference between Islam and the Christian faith is Islam does not have a church. For them, the Muslim religion is a state thing. The state and faith are the same. Well, in the Christian religion, there's this idea of a separate organization, the church, which need not be a governing body. The early churches were not governing bodies, nor are most churches today. And Cameron's distinction between the church as merely the collection of believers. Now, we will come back to Pierre quite soon. Um, the church being the collection of believers and then also the organization of the church, because those two both exist. And they are both important. You cannot only think about the church as the collection of believers because the collection of believers needs to make decisions and that those decisions impact themselves and the people around them. So in terms, let's go back to what Pierre asked. Cabron, do we think about, could we speak about the responsibilities of religion in general? I would say that when I'm referring to the church, I'm mostly just going to be referring to the Christian church in this context because it's almost exclusive to the Christian church to have that doctrine of separation between church and state. Like you pointed out, there is none. Well, there can be, but that's in very, very limited cases that there is a separation of church and state in predominantly Muslim states, for example. And I would also add on that it's the same applies to Hindu states and then to a lesser degree Buddhist states. I will talk about religion more broadly, but I'll make that distinction when I do. When I say church, I'm mostly talking about Christianity. Okay, cool. So then, since we've got the definitions out of the way uh, between church and state, then where does this idea of um, separation of church and state come from? I touched on it earlier. Um, I believe it was in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to a Baptist church who supported him in his run for president, where he promised them that there would be a wall of separation between church and state. That in and of itself is not a binding legal text. 
Um, and I did touch on that earlier. And basically what he meant by it is the church is not going to influence what, I mean, the state is not going to influence what the church is going to do. We're not going to um, stop you from planting churches or getting salvations. We're not going to interfere with what's said on the pulpit. But that kind of has shifted in um, modern terms, particularly in legal terms. So now it's much more a two-way street than what Thomas Jefferson meant, and it's kind of been adopted by a lot of legal systems to say that we are not going to put something into law simply because it's religious. And at the same time, the church, the state is not going to really interfere with the church. Now, sometimes there are exceptions where we absolutely do need to interfere with the church. I'm thinking like many of the cultic churches, I can't remember the name of the church that where they put all the members together and they burnt down the building. I forget the name of that cult, but that was a case in which the state probably should have interfered with the church. To, to as much a degree as possible, we're trying to keep the state out of the church and as much as possible keep the church out of the state. What's interesting, um, you mentioned not putting something into the law if it's religious. Then the question would be, what constitutes religious influencing the law because the idea of human dignity is a religious statement it's, it's mm. a fundamental worldview statement whether or not humans have dignity depends on your view of god if you believe god does not exist human dignity has a different reasoning than if you believe god exists and if we are made in god's image as in the christian view then human dignity is foundational but if we are not made in god's image if we're merely the products of chance then human dignity is not so foundational and that immediately goes into your lawmaking. That's just a very important example. And I'd like to point out in that is if you legislate any form of morality, it will exclude other forms of morality. So you must legislate religious beliefs, whether they're only founded on religion or not, is I think an interesting topic we're going to discuss now. But at least if you're going to legislate, let's say, a pro-abortion position, you're necessarily legislating an anti-pro-life position. Mm-hmm. And ex- so legislating any form of morality will necessarily lead you to legislate the opposite of another form of morality. And I mean this in, in everyday conversations when, when you speak to people, but even in certain law fields, when you speak to people and they say, don't push your morality onto me. For one, that statement is a moral statement they're pushing on to you. And for two, any position they then give will be the position contrary to yours. So they're legislating their morality. Hmm. I would then say that it's an interesting conversation what legislate or what is religious. And that question of morality, it definitely does impact our law. And it's something that a shockingly few amounts of lawyers actually do think about that morality. I would say that, first of all, I would premise that Christianity doesn't have an exclusive claim on goodness, right? You can be a good atheist, a good Muslim, a good Hindu. You can be a bad Christian or you can be a good Christian, right? I would say that it's that idea of goodness and the idea of fairness, justice, all these lovely things that the state should be focusing on. And that can intersect with Christianity and that can intersect with any other religion. So... If you believe that it is bad to have an abortion from a Christian point of view, you could say that it's bad generally. Therefore, the state shouldn't do it because it's bad. I think what Cameron is pointing out here, when we say the state shouldn't legislate religiously, we mean the state shouldn't legislate 
sectarianly or because of a specific group. We shouldn't make a law because it's a Baptist law or a Reformed law or a Catholic law. We should make a law because of human nature. We, we generalize it. We say, we as humans say, ach, we as Christians would say, man is made in the image of God and therefore has dignity. But we say all men have dignity. It's a, it's a general thing. And we legislate according to that generality. And we would also argue that even if you're not a Christian, you can hold to human dignity obje- objectively, I would almost want to say. And, and not only you should, not only that you, you yep. would, but you should hold to human dignity. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, a short argument for human dignity would be that atheism necessarily leads to dignity not having a grounding. Christianity in the Imago Dei necessarily gives a founding uh, foundation for human dignity. We all experience human dignity objectively. Any argument against human dignity will be removed from everyone's experience of human dignity. And even the person saying, I don't believe in human dignity, will want to be um, handled with human dignity. Therefore, the best explanation would be the one that legislates human dignity. So that, that would just be a short secular argument for human dignity. Just a quick abductive argument. So I think the point we're trying to bring across is that although certain ideas might be found in religious text and held to a certain group for religious reasons, does not necessitate that they do not have an, a more objective foundation in things outside of the scriptures. Just a short example, Romans 1 and 2 argues that most of Christian morality is found objectively outside of the scripture as well. So the Bible itself tells you that the Bible's morality can be justified justified outside of the Bible. We all know that murdering is wrong, committing adultery, whatever your definition of murder and adultery are, but we all know that that's wrong. And I think the state should legislate according to those more general. Now my question would be, um, caring for the poor, caring for those who cannot look after themselves, does not come naturally to most people. And I would say, but we see that in the prophets, for example, if you read Amos or Jeremiah or Isaiah, very religious texts, they speak about caring for the widow and the orphan in their distress. Uh, that's actually a quote from a different, from a letter from James. So what I'm kind of realizing in this discussion is if you believe, for example, that you should care for the poor and you want that to be implemented on a more secular, because we live in a world where those things are split. You know, if you want that to be implemented in your business, you need to be able to argue for you at, to your business people in general why you should care for the poor. You should first, if you are able to convey your religious convictions using non-religious assumptions, then you have won, I almost want to say, in, in changing society. I think that's a, it's just a practical. If I want the Christian idea of human dignity to be in biological sciences, I cannot go with Bible verses and convince everyone that people have dignity. I need to argue for it objectively. And I think that's part of the aim of this podcast is to think about it in that way. That's very interesting. Mm. I would say that specifically on the point of taking care of the poor, we have a state, or at least a democratic state now, where we value humans, right? Democracy is based on the foundation that humans have opinions 
and humans can choose how we're going to lead ourselves, at least to somewhat of a degree, right? And because of that, humans have inherent value. Everyone in the society has inherent value, particularly like in a modern democratic state. I'm not talking about Athens so much, where only a few people could vote, but like in a modern democracy, everyone has a vote, everyone's opinion matters, right? Therefore, we care about people. And it is actually in our best interest to take care of the oppressed in society. And many atheists will also argue for this thing, which is why a lot of atheists are actually socialists. The Venn diagram is one big circle, right? And they are able to say that even with a non-religious basis, we ought to care for the oppressed and the less fortunate members of society. And we can agree to this thing. I don't think that we can... Excuse me. Um, I do think that that we build a state in order to care for these people, right? We pay our taxes for the common good, right? We pay so that roads may be built, that the power companies can keep on going, that the government can keep providing services. We do this thing for a common good, and that common good necessarily includes those who cannot care for themselves, the widows and the orphans and the poor and the oppressed in general. And it is the state's mandate to take care of those people especially, because they can't do it themselves. Yes. And, and if you argue that the market will just look after them, then you've not lived. The market does not look after those who are not part of the market. And if you say that just... This, this is the general, like, I'm, I'm now sp speaking about very strong libertarian capitalism, the type of thing that you find in the USA. The people argue that, no, let's just be very free in our market. Let's have no state interference at all. Let people just trade freely and the poor will necessarily be uplifted. What we see is not that the poor are uplifted, but that those with good skills, but this, the market won't necessarily care for the poor. It has no moral obligation. Speaking about the difference between a, a more socialist and a more capitalist society, I think it is important to, to remember historically communism has only been bad for the health of the majority of a, a population. So if we move, if we want to say the state's purpose is human flourishing and communism actively works against it, then we should not pursue a communist state but what we've also seen is that as joe pointed out this rank libertarian capitalist societies also tend to oppress people though objectively less individuals but still a lot of individuals so clearly these two poles are not the option so maybe looking somewhere between the two but moving on from just looking at the state's purpose to towards human flourishing and the church has a purpose towards human flourishing. I would want to ask, Cabrin, where or how do you see the Christian who forms part of both? He lives in a society with the state and he's in the church and in a church. 
How should the Christian go about? Well, naturally, I would have to argue as a Christian myself that the Christian's primary obligation is to his God. Like the big commandment, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul and all thy mind. Second to that is love thy neighbor. So first of all, be a Christian, then be in a society, right? So we have to prioritize our God and we have to prioritize then more objectively and more secularly what is good because that necessarily flows from God. If we believe that God is good, we have to abide by that good and we have to kind of try to become more Christ-like. That's our mandate as Christians, right? So we're called to do. So our moral obligations have to apply over to a state. Now, I don't think we can, for example, we have a moral obligation to bring people to salvation, right? I don't think we can legislate that. So I would then, for that case, I would argue what John Locke argued. He essentially argued that the means of the state and the aims of the church are so mutually exclusive that they can't exist together. The state necessarily achieves flourishing by restriction. And it does that by either coercion, convincing people, you ought to do this, or by violence, forcing people to do this thing. You'll pay your taxes because it's a good thing to do, because it's better for the common good. And if you don't do it, we'll throw you in jail for tax evasion, right? That's how the state does it. Whereas the church has a priority to love people. We can't bring about a salvation by force, because that means nothing, at least in a Christian sense, right? We can't force people to be saved. So we can't legislate that people ought to be saved, but we can put in our moral obligation to still go out into society and try to save people. So would you then say the better option is to legislate freedom of speech that allows the safe space in society for individuals to be to share the gospel and then freedom of association so that the individual who does not want to be approached by the gospel can choose to, to reject the Christian. In that way, protecting the, the rights and the desires of both the Christian and the non-Christian. I, I would agree with both the freedom of speech and the freedom of association for that purpose, but also for bigger purposes. Like Generally speaking, freedom of speech and freedom of association is a good thing. It is a stopgap against tyranny. It's a stopgap yeah. against horrible ideas. Like You have the right to say whatever on earth you want to, and I have the right to call you out for it. Right? If you're being full of nonsense, I'm going to tell you, you're being full of nonsense because just as much as you have freedom of speech, I have freedom of speech. So I think that freedom of speech is good for salvation, amongst other things. A note on that, if you're a South African and you feel like sometimes this country of ours isn't the best, I want to encourage you, we have a very healthy press environment. South Africa has a remarkably free Speech. You can say whatever you want about the politicians and there's no legal effects for that. And the majority. That is very different compared to a country like... Insert Saudi Arabia. Here. Saudi Arabia? Yeah, I'm just now... <laughs> Tajikistan. Yes. Because I know it's... Picks the obscure stan. In Tajikistan, you cannot say anything against their president. You will literally go to jail for it. In South Africa, this is not the case. We can make jokes about our president. We can have weird comics about him. And this actually shows that our country is remarkably healthy in terms of public engagement. And that's one of the things that's keeping us from tyranny. I just want to encourage you in that. Another thing to note is that the idea that religious association is a free thing is also remarkably new. 
in Babylon, if you decided not to pray to Marduk, guess what? You got killed. Being an atheist was actually a crime for most of human history. The early Christians, it's really funny, if you read the second letter of Justin Martyr, um, he's an early church writer, the Romans accused the Christians of being atheists because they did not worship the Greek gods. And therefore, they wanted to literally prosecute, you know, take to jail the Christians for being atheists. We live in a society now where it's fine to be an atheist. You don't get criminally taken to jail, especially not in South Africa. I don't know how the situation is. And that actually comes from the Christian, <laughs> Christian religion, because, because salvation can only be free. You, you cannot be saved if it's by coercion, because that's literally... How can you put your trust in someone by coercion? Because of that, the state then realized that you cannot legislate religion. You can legislate a Greek polytheistic religion because it's in sacrifices. But you cannot legislate the Christian religion, which is internal. And so that is why we have the freedom of religion that we have now. It was actually brought about in Christian countries by Christians. I would also want to add on to that, that Christianity moved away from the interpretation that the right to rule is divine. And I'm very, very grateful for that. A lot of other religions haven't really moved away from that idea. Particularly, we're talking about Greeks and Romans. They haven't moved away from that idea whatsoever. So you have the right not only to choose your ruler, and you have the right to completely disrespect them. It's that idea of, I disagree with what you say, but I will fight for your right to say it. Right? That old, the idea from Voltaire. And I would say that the idea that the right to rule is inherently divine means that the ruler can never ever make a mistake because it is given to them by God. And even if you disagree with them and you think they make a, made a mistake, you can't take it away from them because it was given to them by God. You have to wait until God takes it away from them. And that must be distinguished from, of course, the situation with Saul and David and Solomon, where it was actually, for at least the Christians and the Jews, actually instantiated by God. Yes. So that, that's an example where God explicitly did instantiate a certain form of monarchy, and he specifically pointed out certain individuals for those roles. But that's different than, for example, claiming that, say, Queen Victoria has a divine right to rule because God specifically called that individual towards it. Um, not that I think that was specifically the arguments given for a divine right to rule. This is an important question, and I think many Christians will be like now, but Job, there's a, and Cabron, and Pierre, there's a verse in the Bible that says, everyone must submit himself to governing authorities, for there is no authority except what which God has established. Romans 13. Now, I'm going to just so that this question is actually answered, I'm just going to go a bit deeper into this passage. It says, Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Okay, so this passage is saying, do not rebel against the government because God has instituted it. It's directly against what Cabrin is saying. But then it continues, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. So Paul is saying the role of the government is to keep evildoers from doing evil freely. 
and to keep those who do good to continue doing good. Some have interpreted that to mean that if the government stops doing good, it has lost its authority. And the authority is not given to an individual, but to the office of the government. That's a very important thing. The president acts both as himself, but also as the president. When the president makes a decision, he does not make that decision as an individual, but in the office of the president. And that authority is what is given by God. Where, If it might be in a monarchy or a democracy or an oligarchy or whatever, the idea that you are there to make sure that good people can be good freely and that evildoers are punished, that authority is given by God in whichever form it might be. Mm-hmm. And I would add on to that, that passage puts an emphasis on the goodness, right? If you do good, the ruler has nothing against you. Which implies to me that that goodness is higher than the ruler. Touching on what I said earlier, our first duty is to God, and then it is to our ruler. Now, if it would be unchristian and against God's will to practice Christianity where a ruler um, prohibits it, that would be an interesting paradox. I can't be a Christian because my ruler forbids it, because my, and my Christian doctrine tells me to obey my ruler. So that obviously can't be what God means, because that would be a hopeless paradox. So clearly, our first responsibility must always be to God. And if that means defying our ruler in order to obey God, then we must do that. However, I won't say that we must use this loosely whatsoever, because a lot of people use this very, very loosely and make their own rebellions in the name of God. That's not at all what I mean, right? We can't just use this willy-nilly. It has to be something very, very, very serious. If the ruler prohibits you to love, if the ruler stands in the way of justice, in that case, we as Christians must stand up for justice and must stand up for love. And not by revolution. Revolution very rarely brings forth anything good. France's revolution just bred another revolution and then a dictator. I think a revolution, a dictator, and then another revolution. To overthrow the dictator, and then we had an emperor. (laughs) And Russia's revolution brought forth dictators. China's revolution brought forth dictators. The fact of the matter is, revolution, this idea of a complete overturning of the state, is never a Christian's call. So, as I understand it, classically the divine right to rule was held exactly in this sense that it's an office which is instantiated by God to have a certain amount of authority and these authorities may even include the right to use violence. For example, when Jesus says the state does not carry the sword in vain. We see that classically the divine right to rule has been held with the qualification that the the office of the monarch is one that is given randomly at birth to a certain individual. So that, let's say, George was born to the monarch family, was no choice of George. George just happened to be born there. In that sense, they would say it was a free or or an equal transfer in the individual, or so the argument went. And then George necessarily did not only have the freedom to be a monarch, which many people desire, but had the responsibility towards the good of his people. So if you, you do not hold to that responsibility, there were certain qualifications to be deposed and so on. But sadly, having the amount of power and freedom that a monarch has, has historically led to many 
um, abuses thereof to the point that these laws that were put in place to stop it did not count. So it's interesting to see the difference in different ways of ruling. Now the divine right of kings is replaced by the divine right of the majority to choose. <laughs> so we, we just have a different way of, of using what would be seen as a divine right. Now it is the, the sovereignty of every individual who, who is made up, who makes up the state. And, and we should not take that for granted. We should not think that that's obvious that every individual should choose. I mean, there are very basic arguments that people would give. They would say, no, but some people are more educated. I've heard that at a party where a guy would say, no, but not everyone should vote because not everyone's equally educated. What he's not seeing is that would lead to a dictatorship of the educated. On that topic, um, the ancient Greek writer and philosopher Plato who's one of the most influential philosophers who've ever lived, wrote in his um, work on the state, which is called the Republic, he, and he works towards justice and what should be justice and the role of the state is towards justice. But he actually argues actively against democracy. He says any form of democracy necessarily le- leads to tyranny because it will lead to the rule of the many over the few so you will have a tyranny of the many and the crowds can easily be persuaded by a good orator to give him the power to then basically become a dictator and in context Plato did live in a time that Athens was just ruled by the 40 tyrants who took who misused democracy to gain power so (laughs) he was living in a time where this actually happened with the democratic state of Athens That's why you find later forms of democracy are, for one, constitutional democracies. We put down laws to say this is good and this is evil. Do not do this. Even the government may not do this because that stops certain forms of tyranny. And then we put down certain human rights that work against tyranny, such as freedom of speech, association, movement and so on. As, As a law student myself, I can go on for days railing about the failings of our justice system and railing on about the failures of our legislature. However, even I must acknowledge that due to our constitutional democracy, we are able to hold our leaders accountable, at least to some degree, like Zuma, our ex-president, Jacob Zuma, is currently what is um, sentenced to be in jail at the moment. And he puts in an application for a remission to say, let me out of jail. And the constitutional court said, no, we're not letting you out of jail. You did a crime. Well, you did a crime. That is, that is a bit of a weird sentence. You committed a crime. You must be punished for it. This is your punishment. You didn't show up in court. Here's your punishment for it. You make a mockery of the justice system. Here's your punishment. And we're able to punish someone as powerful as an ex-president. That shows that, at least to some degree, we have accountability in this country, and that's something to be grateful for. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to close, so I'm going to ask Pierre and Cabron, and I'll give my, first, my own opinion first, and then you guys can f- give the closing thoughts. What should the relationship between the church and the state be? My thoughts is each individual, Christian and non-Christian, We should fight for what is good for humans in general. So in your church, be for what is good for people, be for human flourishing. And as an individual in your secular influence sphere, be for what is good. If you see what is good in the scripture, generalize it 
and use that as motivation in the secular sphere. That will make you merely more persuasive. Pierre, Cabron, any thoughts? I would genuinely agree with what you have to say. I would say that our primary focus should be on what is good. And that would bleed into our politics. The state and the church have to be separate. What the priorities of the church are and what the state are are so mutually exclusive that they can't be intertwined, at least in a Christian sense. So we should let both organizations do their thing because both of these organizations have a good thing. And the individual takes part in both necessarily, at least the Christian individual. So they should be striving for what is good in the state, even if it's not necessarily Christian. I would agree with Cameron and with Joe. I think naturally we as human beings form a society because we're social beings and our societies, at least at this point in time, are governed by states. And that means as an individual born in a country with a state, you necessarily need to participate in the state because you necessarily need to participate in your society. And then you are a Christian, so you should be a good Christian working and and laboring in your own church, working towards the good there, working towards the upbuilding of the church and of your, your fellow Christians, and then working towards the aims of the church. But the aims of the church cannot be accomplished without political action in the sense that you must participate in, the pol- in, in politics in as far as it's necessary to create an environment conducive to, cl- to Christian actions. That doesn't mean you need to legislate caring for the poor for your state, but if that's possible and you can and the state is willing, at least, even if these individuals are not Christian, you would be helping towards the general good of your society. And in the same way, towards certain things that Christians cannot see as moral. Um, if we take abortion as an example, as a Christian, you, you cannot see abortion as moral, but you also, there are a variety of secular arguments. So the place of the Christian in the state is to actively work towards what is a true faith, and that's caring for the widows and the orphans and to care for the downtrodden. And in that sense, you're working through the state as well to to preserve life in the case of abortion. You're, you're working towards, if you believe abortion to be wrong, you believe it to be murder, then you're working to stop a certain form of murder, just like William Wilberforce would fight against slavery. You're trying to end a certain form of oppression, And to that, you try to persuade the state. You don't make a revolution. You persuade people through reason and argument and good and pure action. Being the person that takes up the the cross, who takes up this form of suffering or, or oppression and works against it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. And we would like to thank Cabron as well for coming on to this episode. It was really a joy to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. And we hope you enjoy your week. We'll speak to you again next week. And remember, always pick the obscure stand. Thank you for listening to the Substantial Life podcast. If you like this episode, please share this episode, leave a comment, or ask us a question on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can also leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. And remember, seek wisdom wherever it might be found.